everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of the Autism Grown Up Podcast. Today I'm talking with Corinne Levitt. She is the author of Exceptional Minds Across the Autism Spectrum. The Autism Grown Up Podcast is just one of the many resources that Autism Grown Up offers. We are an online nonprofit organization focused on talking about growing up and navigating adulthood and providing the resources, strategies, and ideas, as well as support to help you along the way. Whether you're an autistic self-advocate at any age, a family member, professional, or someone who's an ally who wants to learn more, this is the place for you. Through this podcast, we share conversations and interviews, as well as strategies from our resource center about people and organizations that are doing work in this exact area. There's not a lot of resources and information when it comes to those teen years and adulthood, as well as even just shifting our focus towards thinking about the lifespan itself. So this is the place where we are hoping to fill in those gaps. I'm your host, Dr. Tara Regan, so you will be hearing my voice around these parts. I am a sibling, I have two brothers on the spectrum, Tyler and Tanner, and I've been in the autism field for well over a decade at this point, from doing direct care support, social work, uh, special education and research in schools and in the community. So I've learned a lot along the way and have had so many conversations with folks just like the ones you're gonna be listening to and I wanted to share these conversations with you as well. So get ready, grab a cup of coffee or tea or your preferred beverage and let's sit down together with today's guest. Hello, I'm gonna be sharing my interview with Corinne Levitt. Here's a little bit more about her and her work. After many years as working as a high school English teacher and special educator, Corinne Levitt decided to change direction and work primarily with adolescents with special needs and developmental differences. She wrote Exceptional Minds Across the Autism Spectrum in recognition of the need to promote the important role of an enriched educational experience and that it can have so much impact on the lives of students who stand to benefit the most from best teaching practices. Her background in learning disabilities, psycholinguistics, and the arts enabled her to teach to the talent while encouraging her students to discover and explore their potential. She works to inspire other educators to re-examine what lies behind their current understanding of ASD and learning differences in order to create a school culture based on dignity, respect, social inclusion, and the right to a meaningful education. In this episode, you're going to learn a lot more about how to collaborate with students to develop their strengths and not become locked into labels, and the importance of recognizing the adolescent years as a critical opportunity for learning and developing new skills and talents as we start preparing them for the future, and how to see past deficits and recognize the innate potential of all students to learn and thrive. Now let's jump into my interview with Corinne Levitt. Hey everyone, welcome to the Autism Grown Up Podcast. Joining us today is Corinne Levitt. Hey Corinne, how are you? Hi there. Very well. Good. So uh, could you tell us a little bit about you and your work in the autism community? Well, I'm now a retired teacher um, and I've taught for over 40 years. And even after I retired, I was sort of called back by... um, different schools where I worked to say, hey, if you can come back, you know, we have students, maybe you could work one-on-one with and be a, uh, a tutor. And so uh, I still kept my hand in and, and worked with students long after I retired. Uh, so, um, and then uh, during that time, I started to, to write a book. So um, during uh, my teaching career, I always wanted to learn more and find out, okay, what's what's the latest educational um, theory that people are all excited about or technique or approach. And um, I did start out as an elementary school teacher because I thought that reading and literacy was a very important skill to teach. Mm-hmm. My degree is in English literature. I love books. And so the love of, of, of books and learning, I thought, was a very important skill to teach 
children. Mm -hmm. So I started off teaching reading to uh, in grade one where they really emphasize it. And then I discovered there were students who were struggling. So I thought, hmm, these are the students I'm interested in because they really need the best teaching methods that we can offer. So I started to take courses and did training and discovered different approaches to the teaching of reading. I had a background in psycholinguistics, which really where you bring in the individual and see why is this person struggling? Are they an auditory learner, visual learner? How can I adapt my teaching method so they can discover the love of books? Mm -hmm. And so uh, I was able to work with students who um, were struggling. And then around that time, we were just learning about students who had learning disabilities, the invisible handicap, and people were wary and they thought, well, students who struggle with reading and, and spelling and writing, um, obviously they're slow learners, you know, they're really not very bright. Mm -hmm. And it took a, really 10 years while I was teaching to change that mindset and said, no, these students just mm -hmm. learn differently, but they really are bright. So with accommodations, different teaching methods and so on. And then all of a sudden, what happens was that these students, as they got into high school, and now I found a job running a reading center in a high school. So these students who were discovered in the early grades with learning disabilities were now in high school and the high school's teachers said, wait a minute, if they haven't been fixed or cured by high school, they don't belong here. And in those years, you could like drop out at the age of 16 or, you know, maybe go to um, uh, uh, vocational school is what they suggested. But students who didn't have the what they say were the academic skills didn't belong. But parents persisted as parents do, thank goodness, and said, mm -hmm. no, my student is quite bright. Uh, I understand it may not be evident at first. And many of them also then started to have social problems. In fact, quite a few of the students I work with, I realized looking back, probably had uh, uh, Asperger's, of course, but we didn't mm. know about that until 1991. Yeah. So, but they had that little professor. So at that time, they fell into the learning disabilities category. Mm. And as those students started to really do well, and teachers thought, oh, well, now that they dictated their essay, or we found other ways and taught them writing skills and just really good teaching methods, Teachers said, wait, if you can get such excellent results with students who were failing so miserably and who I thought really weren't bright, and now I see that he's an expert in history or he knows all about stereo equipment or whatever it was, mm -hmm. there was a shift. And then that gave rise to universal design. An awareness, you had Howard Gardner coming out and people like that, Howard Gardner, you know, about different minds and uh, everyone, this became then the latest thing and we were all excited about it. And then students with learning disabilities just were no longer the other, but they fell into what we called well. If these students are doing well, imagine how neurotypical students will do if we also get away from the one size fits all approach and expand our teaching methods, recognizing that everyone learns differently. Mm -hmm. So I'm excited, I'm trained, I love this, and I'm teaching in high school. And then um, I, I actually moved into teaching adult education, uh, giving adults who had missed out on special ed interventions, who were sort of not part of that new understanding. And so they ended up in uh, adult high schools in Ontario, Canada. We, we have that for free, they can attend. Uh -huh. And you know, uh, it was then that I, and we were starting just then to hear about, um, you know, autism and students um, weren't allowed with autism to attend schools. You know, we had to have that, all that legislation and everything had to change to give them universal access. So the adults in the program, there were many who actually had autism or Asperger's or were on the spectrum. However, you know, I don't really like the labels and I became interested. And so uh, I decided that that was gonna be, that's the new challenge people aren't doing enough for people on the spectrum. And I uh, started to go and work in different high schools, both in uh, contained, uh, self-contained settings, as well as inclusive environments, because I wanted to see, you know, how they did in each and keep yeah. learning myself. And what I discovered was that all of a sudden, you know, I, I was well-trained, different minds. I thought, yes, this is just different minds. So we're just going to use the learning disabilities model. And no one was. And in high school, I was told, when I realized that, especially when some of the students coming into my class couldn't read. And I thought, well, why aren't they reading? And I read through their files and there's no mention of literacy education. It was all sort of a behavior focus. Yeah. And it's what sort of, you know, um, what Temple Grandin uh, has um, 
talked about, and parents uh, who've read my book keep raising this point with me about we need to get away from looking at the acting self and think about the thinking self. Mm. And I love what Temple says in her book, if I can quote, yeah, <laughs> not quoting from mine, but she really inspired me to write this book. She really put a challenge out there in the autistic brain to say, why aren't we looking at the thinking self? And I thought that's an excellent question and I'm going to try to answer it. And that's sort of brought about the beginning of why I wanted to write the book. Uh -huh. And she says, if you want to know what the symptoms of autism mean, you have to go beyond the behavior of the autistic person and into his or her brain. Mm -hmm. But wait, is the diagnosis of autism based on behaviors? Isn't our whole approach to autism a result of what the experience looks like from the outside, the acting self, rather than what the experience feels like from the inside, the thinking self? Yes which is why I believe the time has come to rethink the autistic brain. And that is why I felt it is time in my first section of the book is called Rethinking Education. Mm -hmm. That's fantastic. Gosh, yeah, I think you bring up such a wonderful point that we do have a tendency in autism and special education as it regards autism to focus on behavior so much. Like we see that part and the label of autism for, at the forefront of the student. And so it's not either or. So my book shows, of course, we're concerned about behaviors, right. but it needs to be done through the holistic approach. Mm -hmm. That's what we did with learning disabilities. And what you find is when you go then find the strengths, and sometimes the strengths are hidden in those, what we think are deficits or weaknesses, but they're actually a strength hiding. Oh, underneath okay. and so you need to learn and be trained and the book addresses that and we were trained in that with learning disabilities to see into the past the acting self and say what is going on because autism is first and foremost a neurological condition this isn't just to say to explain it away as what it is mm -hmm. by saying it's neurological it opens up a pathway to the brain through cognitive development when we talk mm -hmm. about these deficits i like to call about uh, these things developmental detours that people on the autism just follow a different developmental path uh -huh. it's not the path of neurotypicals and we may somehow be at odds or out of sync but it's a pathway towards the same end and at the end certain strengths may outweigh or dominate and deficits may also sort of prevent us from seeing those strengths but my book presents a different way of looking at seeing the thinking self and perception mm -hmm. to make that evidence so an example yeah i love one a wonderful technique is schedules. We all know right from the beginning, we, pe people on the spectrum and even us, and that's what yeah. I also try to say that yeah, we all like schedules, but it works very well. And teachers in the early grains has a schedule. You can have an icon, you can have it in writing, you can have mm -hmm. them write their own and Velcro strips and all kinds of things. And they're wonderful. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But as a high school teacher, what I soon discovered was these schedules came in and we were told to use it. But then, especially in high school, our schedules change. It's an assembly day schedule. Exams are coming up. Uh, yeah. uh, it's a dance day. And so we have all these different schedules. And so quickly, I realized that my students, uh, adolescent students, were so trained to follow that schedule that any time there was a change, particularly if it was unexpected, if we could prepare, it went a little better, um, there would be meltdowns. And so I thought to myself, well, schedules work until they don't work. And when they don't work, it's, <laughs> it is not a good situation. Right. So I went home and I thought, hmm, I got to figure this out. And so um, there was a day when a student was supposed to get uh, some eye drops. And I write about this in the book. And she was told it had to be at 12 noon must the doctor said must have these eye drops and of course she took what he said literally mm -hmm. and the educational assistant with the medication was a little bit late that day so 12 o'clock arrived yeah. no medicine and the student had a meltdown and there was nothing i could say to calm her i just kept the office quick quick <laughs> the eye drops, please. Yes. Here now. so anyway it all sort of worked out and then i went home that night i thought okay got to got to 
need some wiggle room. We got to figure this out. Uh -huh. And so it's called the ish lesson. And so the next day I said to my students, you know, you are all amazing at telling time. I mean, even if there isn't a clock in the room, I don't know if they had like an inner sundial, but all my students could tell time like to the second. Uh -huh. So we had a kind of, a, you know, analog and digital and playing at what time is it kind of game with the students and then I said you know what you are so expert but there's one time you don't know about and they looked at me no there isn't no I, no really there is what is it who can tell me and show me on this clock 12 ish and they looked at me and they started to 12 ish 12 ish they thought that was hysterical so <laughs> funny anyway I explained to them what that there's this ish zone so that if someone needs their eye drops at 12, it, you know, we do talk about 12 on the dot or 12 sharp or 12 ish. It could be a little bit before, a little bit after, and they loved it. And then it was so funny because then parents came back to me and, and, and you know, I was talking, they said, you know, my son came home and like, I told him that I would pick him up at four and he's telling me four ish and he's laughing and what's going on. Like, they, <laughs> and they said, and it's really made our lives easier. So oh, I it's a small and it was fun and enjoyable. That's and so, but then I thought, you know, as I'm writing and uh, I also wanted to learn more. So I wanted to read more. And I said, so what are we doing here? So uh, the teach program, yeah. I guess that you would be very aware of in yeah. North Carolina and yeah. Gary Mazabov. So right. I was reading stuff by Gary Mazabov, who's terrific. Mm -hmm. And uh, he wrote about the same thing that he he's an expert in adolescent learners. And he's pointed out with the research uh, that's there that the adolescent years, everyone thinks the early years, it's the critical time. We got to start early. And that's absolutely true. But the adolescent right. years, because of the brain is changing, developing puberty, neuroplasticity is a really critical time in a child's development where we can step in, expand their minds, expand their experiences, enrich their education, and they can learn then to be flexible. And mm -hmm. he said that with, you need to teach flexibility because now they're older and more cognitively capable and aware, and it's the perfect time. So I show his research and what he did, Catherine Johnson, people he quotes, and what he does at, uh, at they did at his center. He's retired, but I think he's still active giving workshops. Yeah. And so, so I have immersed in the book throughout sort of these, the research bits from experts in the field that teachers are not aware of. Very few know about teach. Very few realize that the adolescent years is really an important opportunity to prepare them for what you do. Yeah. Life after they graduate. We have no time to waste. Every minute counts. And we and to just manage students isn't good enough. Right. No, that's so true. I think you bring up so many great points about teaching flexible thinking and that incorporates that thinking sense of self. Yes. Um, that was so a key for educators to be thinking about. So um, we touched on some of these too, but are there uh, some uh, some to particular topics that are, were so important to you as an educator and as you were seeing different sorts of classroom settings? Um, I bet we talked a little bit before the recording about um, just the how there is a lot of wiggle room. There's just like a lot of rigidity for special education and autism. Like this is the only way to do things. Yes. So it's not a one size fits all. And, and universal design for typical students, uh, and which came out of that uh, learning disability models that recognizes different minds. We already know how to do it, mm -hmm. but it's not being done because... It, the thinking is that students on the spectrum, it's the behavior, and that keeps getting in the way of the teaching. And so what we found, for example, and we go back to Lorna Wing, who's the first one to come up in the 60s with this idea of a spectrum. She's from the UK, mm -hmm. and so she's credited with developing the idea of autism as a spectrum. Her own daughter in the 60s was diagnosed. She really didn't know what to do. She herself was a psychiatrist and hadn't even been trained. Nobody knew about this. So she established the National Autistic Society in the UK for parents and educators and, and anyone interested. And she established one of the first schools. It was called the Sybil Elgar School. Sybil Elgar was an excellent teacher in the 60s. The Beatles even went to visit it. It was all the rage and for children on, this, on the spectrum. And she was trained in the Montessori method as well as learning disabilities. 
which was just emerging. And it worked very well. And she taught reading and all those things. So I went back and I read uh, work by Sybil Elgar. And one of the things that she did to deal with the, you know, when certainly lots of behaviors that she was concerned about, and they had the wide range of ages, mm. the school, and they eventually set up an adult program as well. And they were really big on hands-on learning, as well as recognizing different styles of learning. Mm -hmm. And so they found that when they taught students sewing and knitting and handicrafts and art and did music and various things like that, that the behaviors lessened significantly. So I think we really need to get back to, and what Temple writes about, this hands-on learning, this practical learning, this, you know, when I wanted to teach uh, my students money math, for example, I noticed that they would go uh, to the vending machine in the in the hall near the cafeteria to get a drink or uh, a snack because they really didn't like going to the cafeteria. They didn't want that personal interaction, but they were putting in their money like it was a Vegas slot machine, like, you know, coming away with their bag of chips, but they would leave their change behind. Uh, so that was my lesson called don't forget your change. And what we did was that we built our own vending machine and it's in on my website. You can find it there. Oh, very cool. Um, and with just old computer boxes, the students helped design it. The students with higher math skills could be on the inside of the machine. And it had sort of dynamic lessons with Velcro for you could raise the level of difficulty mm. uh, for the uh, making change. And, you know, first it would be, uh, you know, um, we have funny money in Canada, the loonies and the toonies, but oh, so it'd be, let's say a, a, a dollar. And then okay. I would add a dollar 25, like I would, you know, so that they put in $2 or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, we don't have $2 bills anymore either. We have strange money. Yeah, but anyway, the tasks were, and we used real money because there's that tactile component, very important. And so there's more yeah. about that in my book. So, but the students okay. designed and built the machine and they, and they really helped with their math skills. And once they got that down, and that's the other thing I talk about. So there's the cognitive learning task of making change of how, how to use money, many, many of the components here. And mm -hmm. once you have that down, then let's expand that. Yeah. Let's go to looking at having a student store and interacting with people. So then you want to add the social, but often what happens is that we sort of say, okay, let's just go to the store and buy a chocolate bar. But it's like, oh, I'm not really good at the money thing yet. And now I have to deal with the, per and it's, yeah, it's like, if you're, yeah, it's like if you're afraid of elevators and are asked to sort of go into an elevator and like make change, you know, it's, you want to reduce the anxiety. Mm -hmm. So we really need to, and my book really trains you to have a different perspective on learning tasks and breaking them down to all the moving parts that are involved. And it's beyond just sort of, you know, discrete checklists. There are many moving parts and, and they change from day to day. Right. Yeah. So we not, we need to look at that dynamic learning experience and the lovely thing really, you know, parents get very excited if they've been on a waiting list when their child has been diagnosed and then they find that they get into a therapy program. They're thrilled. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But when parent, when children are ready for school and their parents can send their kids, that excitement isn't there. But education is key. It's really critical for uh, individuals who learn differently or on the spectrum. It is transformative. But yeah. we haven't been using the um, education or seen education as a critical component that it really is. I mean, we want them to have the social and to be there, but the learning piece is so important and we need to raise our expectations and the stories of my students demonstrate that. Definitely. And I think that's something that gets lost as a student gets older too. Like exactly. At a time that it should be yeah. so important. And that's where you come in because we talk, okay, they're 21. Everyone says falling off the cliff. And I thought we shouldn't, that should not exist by the time if we've done our job properly. I mean, they aren't there because it, we have to have them there, although it was legislated. It's because they deserve to be there. Yes. It's because it is their birthright. It is because this is where they can learn, change, grow, develop, and thrive. Mm. And we're falling short. Not because we don't want those things. Everyone does, of course. But our mindset needs to change. Absolutely. We went through that with learning disabilities, and they told me, well, you know, back in the, in 
the uh, late 1970s, teachers came to me and they'd say, I don't want him in my class. He can't read, write, spell. He doesn't belong. Now that person is a doctor. Mm -hmm. But initially, no, because we had the reading, writing, arithmetic mindset, one size fits all. Mm -hmm. And then it did so well. And we shifted from that, that everyone said, well, why are we only learning, doing this with people with learning disabilities? And it became universal design. So we are there at that same point that I was with my learning disabled students. And so I'm very optimistic because I saw change as possible. And -hmm. when you read about my students and their stories, you'll see how success can happen. And there are stories in there where it didn't happen because I need to point out, well, you know, we did fall short, but we're learning. And the same thing happened with learning disabilities. Again, people are, are, you know, are well-meaning. Hmm. But good intentions, as the saying goes, you know, aren't, isn't enough. Yeah, and to continue learning along the way in that process is important to share those stories too. Yeah. Yeah. So my students learned how to read. They learned how to use money. Mm-hmm. They uh, discovered the library once they leave school or other community settings. You don't want them going home at 21 and sitting in the basement. Yes, right. You know, and oh, they learned, yeah. for example, one of my students, um, when she was anxious, uh, she would pull at the threads. She, she loved feeling her shirt and she would pull at the threads and then till she would unravel like a whole sleeve. Mm-hmm. And so um, we happened to, one of the teachers was an excellent knitter, like an artist. And at lunch, she said, let's have some students get together and we'll knit. And I thought, well, invited all my students. I didn't know how to knit. So the student who was just loved the feel of fabric and thread, but it looked, but you know, it looked like this is a problem. We got to get her to stop doing that. We have to maybe do some behavioral stuff. She needs therapy. Uh, Well, she came to this knitting class. She picked up that thread like a duck to water. They showed us how to knit. Like I still am like, (laughs) (laughs) I was so terrible. Um, And she was immediately right away. I mean, they didn't even have to teach her. It was like she had been knitting her entire life. And we were reading Harry Potter. She made Harry Potter scarves and was started to sell her hat. It became a way she was able to earn money. And it was a joy uh, and a passion that she started to come out of her shell, talk about it, make friends. It was transformative. And this behavior stopped. Mm-hmm. Learning is what changed direction for her. And I have many stories like that. Yeah, and that's such a great example too of um, focusing on the strengths. Exactly. Building from there. Um, yes. Uh, and the same with like, let's say figure ground, you know, you have students who sort of don't see the big picture, they see all the details. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so we see that as a problem, but that can actually be worked into a strength. There are people and I have an example of uh, one student who became an excellent reader of maps and then found work using that. But at the same time, you want them to also to be able to see the general. So how do we as teachers uh, enrich that strength and direct it so that uh, something that seems, oh, well, you know, he he's really just sees the small things. He doesn't see so out of it. He doesn't see the big picture. I mean, this is the language that you hear. I'm sorry to speak that way, but that's yeah. the reality. And then I say, no, 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 no. That is a strength that we need to develop. It is not a deficit. And then in terms of the flexibility needed to shift from a task that's see the big picture, see the small picture and the details. Mm -hmm. We can work with that. We teach it, but we need to be first recognize it, accept it, enhance it and celebrate it. Absolutely. I love that reframing framework right there. Exactly. So I would love to um, talk about your book process from the idea of it to Ah. writing and then its release. Because as of this recording, you said it's been out for a month now. Yes. Yes, I I plan to uh, release it during Autism Awareness Month. And then, of Mm. course, COVID happened and everything changed. But, you know... It's really the nature of the book too, isn't it? That uh, change happens and how prepared are we? And uh, it's just, uh, you know, people are saying that life will be different and we will learn hard lessons, not easy, of course, Mm -hmm. but um, there'll be uh, great value, I think. And and so sort of the, the theme that runs throughout my book is not unlike how do we face unexpected challenges and how do we uh, grow from that? Mm-hmm. when life isn't doesn't go as as we expected or planned and so you know for um so my the 
the idea for my book really came because after I retired, you know, I would kind of go to sleep at night and think about, okay, so what projects am I going to do now? And then I'd sleep and then during the night I'd have a dream about one of my students and, you know, a funny incident or something we learned together, or, you know, an art project. One of, many of my students were quite artistic and I'd be having these dreams and they kind of wake me in the night. And so I would write down the stories about them because, they, you know, I wanted to remember them. Yeah. And then from there, I thought, you know what, I'm not really getting much sleep I better do something <laughs> so also oh, it, yeah. so I started and then, and then people said yeah those are good stories like think about a book so I thought about a book and I started to write down my ideas and I thought well when I retired from teaching and I was packing up my room into bankers boxes and you know a few teachers knocked on my door and they said well what are you doing with all of those can you just leave some materials for us we, you know you always seem to do exciting things with your students we would love some yeah. of your materials and I said well you know what the materials on their own are meaningless it's the thinking behind it it's listening to students it's following students leads it's what they've taught me that's in my head mm -hmm. that is the real resource but mm -hmm. what I'll do is I'll write a book instead and that I can give you and so that, and for families too, because I learned a tremendous amount from families. The parents really, and of course, once they heard I was writing the book, they started sending me more stories and information. Uh, but um, as an experienced and well-trained special educator, I realized that I was in the dark when it came to teaching students on the spectrum, as many were. Mm -hmm. And I thought uh, we need to fill that gap because we there's so many resources that are in our schools now in terms of the understanding that we see it as a neurological cognitive challenge mm -hmm. with lots of possibilities. And that's why I talk about these sort of developmental detours. And so just as I was encountered with questions when I started to work with my students with learning disabilities, like he doesn't belong here, he can't read and write if he doesn't have the basics and doesn't fit in and he's socially awkward. And we rose above that. So now teachers were saying that same thing to me, like if I was in a regular high school, oh, they've just given me a student with autism. I really want to help them, but I'm afraid. I don't know what to do. And it's not that they didn't want to do anything. And now with the increasing numbers, which I think is because of increasing awareness and we see we all learn differently. And because the students who were first gaining access to the school were the younger ones and now they're growing up and the numbers and our way of identifying students is also broadening because mm. we have this broader spectrum. More teachers now realize the students are here students are here what are we going to do and yeah. i couldn't find i wrote the book i wish i had had when i first started and so that's sort of what was behind it mm -hmm. and um and then i uh, had the good fortune at a conference in montreal temple grandin was speaking and i was given an opportunity to have uh maybe about 20 minutes with her she's very generous with her time and so wanting to reach out to people it was fantastic so i she talked to me a little bit what I was doing in the classroom and about sensory issues and how those were handled. And so we talked about some of the things I was doing and the students. And she gave me her card and said, sounds really interesting. Send me your manuscript when you finished writing it. So a few years later, I sent it to her. She remembered me, got back to me. Within days, she called me and said, yeah, this is a great, this is what you can do, get it published, think about self-publishing. And then within a week, I was approached by um, uh, a, a philanthropist in Toronto who's very active in the autism community and, and has set up many, involved in setting up programs. And she knew uh, my work and some of my students and said, oh, again, it was just kind of by chance. She said, how's, you were writing a book, weren't you? I said, oh yeah, you remember. She said, well, where is it? I said, well, <laughs> I'm now just ready to sort of find a publisher. She says, oh, well, just self-publish. She said, lots of people do it and I will sponsor the publication of the book. Wow. So we set up a fund so the money goes to charity. And so really this book, it was just people, I don't know, I just chance meetings and then so many people came together and, yeah. and then it kind of grew from there and different um, autism organizations are interested. They're profiled in the book from 
the UK, to the United States, Canada. Uh, and I wrote to people and people wrote back to me and it was fantastic. Uh, Daryl Treffert was very supportive in, and as well. I went to visit his center. He is the um, expert on savant syndrome and uh, hyperlexia, which is the precocious ability children have to learn how to read. We see this in the, um, with students on the spectrum as well as in typical children. And so he's sort of an expert on that. And I went to visit his school in uh, Fond du Lac, Wisconsin and his center. And he also was a consultant on Rain Man way back when. He's like 87, he just turned 87 and a going concern. And there he is, you know, still in the, with the students and active and writing. And he sends out a newsletter every month and wow. he's just terrific. And, you know, it's interesting when, um, so in 19, I think it was 88 when Raid Man came out. Mm -hmm. um, and what, what Daryl Trefford, who's the psychiatrist and has, is really on, at the forefront of, you know, first when, when these children were hospitalized and that's where he was working. And he like, thought, why are they in the hospital? I mean, that was the thing. These kids are so interesting. And what he wrote about them in his book, Islands of Genius, it's fantastic. And so he recognized this, this, uh, these islands of genius in these students and who really should be learning and now has set up a whole center for that uh, in Fond du Lac, which is really worth visiting. And I know Temple Grandin has gone there to speak. And he also reaches out to the public educators there as well. So they're familiar with some of his, his, uh, his approaches. And that's all strength-based. And the looking at developing the exceptional minds, mm -hmm. exceptional as in wonderful, right? And when yeah. we talk about exceptional education, we're really talking about best practices. At least that's what I'd like to do like to think so yeah. with rain man uh what he said was the significant thing about that movie when he was a consultant one of them there were a number he said it wasn't as everyone thinks what happened to raymond who's on the spectrum it was what happened to his brother charlie he said that's what he was focusing on how charlie changed his understanding of his brother once he got to know him yeah. and it's that understanding that needs to happen still today mm -hmm. so it's us we are the ones who can change and when we change and see things differently we're all the better for it it's wonderful i mean it, it's a relationship isn't it it isn't us them it's we all together all together yeah and i think that's also a common issue that still appears in schools all over when we think about autism and our students, uh, they tend to be yes. thought of as like the special ed students who only belong to those case managers and that exactly classrooms, but the whole, they're the whole school's students. Exactly. And I've, some schools do it. Others do not. Yeah. So a school may be doing it. And then, um, a new administrator comes in and then it changes direction. So it's really more because people will say to me, oh, but you know, you, you, you say that this is, but I can tell you about wonderful examples. I said, I love hearing that, but it's more by chance than by design. Mm -hmm. And that's what we saw with learning disabilities as well, mm -hmm. that some people were getting it. And, and, you know, what I'm talking about, even for in private schools, we always say, well, the private are doing it right. But, um, it, for people I know who have visited all these schools, they said, you know what? And I've heard from a one private school actually. And they said, yeah, we need to be, can you come and speak to us? And we need to be doing this. And so, and it's not a criticism. We are evolving. We are always learning. You'll read about all the mistakes I make in my book when I got it wrong. One day when I was reinforcing the schedule, which ended up leading to a meltdown, which I really wasn't listening to my student that day. So I, 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 you know, we all can learn, but, Absolutely. but by making a mistake and writing about it, or I, I wouldn't say a mistake, it was a misunderstanding. And look at neurotypicals have misunderstandings oh, with each God. other. I mean, it's yeah. just part of who we are. But the difference is just, just say, well, that's because they're on the spectrum. No, that's because I didn't listen. That's because I was in a hurry that day. That's because I just thought, oh, it's just the schedule needing to be reinforced. And that's okay. I mean, we're busy in the, but it was, it was such a valuable misunderstanding because, and it's, it's, I tell it in the book mm -hmm. um, and, and it ended up that the student was being bullied. And so 12 o'clock meant trouble. And I thought he wanted to be reminded that that was when yes, lunch would be. 
but he didn't know how to tell me. And, and so you, you, so okay. you get behind once you learn more. Yeah. And then it led to the student being able to make choices. And I said to all the students, you know, when I'm not around or if things happen, you always have the choice of coming to my room. There's always a place for you. And if you want to have lunch in my room instead of going out somewhere else to have lunch in the school, that's your choice. Don't feel that on the schedule it says you must be there and eat there. Mm -hmm. You need to feel, and once the adolescent in particular uh, has a sense that I control the schedule, the schedule doesn't control me, it's life-changing. Yeah. So we need to teach that, present it, give choices. Temple Grandin's mother, Eustacia Cutler, I happened to hear her give a podcast the other day. I've been kind of brushing up on my podcast to see how they <laughs> explore this world. Yeah. She said, people often ask her, so, you know, so what's the answer? I need answers. And she says, there are no answers. There are only choices. And choices are empowering. They're not clear cut always. They could be, oh, this choice didn't work. I'll try another. Right. But they're flexible. And their mm-hmm. choices provide opportunities to learn, grow. And, you know, learning by trial and error is not failure. It's learning. It's part of the learning process that I think, particularly with students on the spectrum, we don't want them to be part of. We kind of want, we have this idea of this kind of sort of perfect uh, prescribed program we need more open-endedness and so what my book is is if you prescribe programs of prescriptive teaching can work in certain situations or for particular tasks but we need to have a lot of give and take and flexibility and inform everything that we do with an awareness of how students learn and how to see past what might appears to be a deficit but is uh, a strength in waiting that just needs to be liberated, enhanced, and developed. In waiting, I love it. Uh, And you mentioned so many wonderful resources and tools and even linked to people's research, which I always love (laughs) based on my background. Um, So what are some other common resources or tools that you've turned to or would recommend others to use? Okay, so... um, when we spoke earlier, actually, I mentioned that the e version of my book is quite nice because throughout my book, as a teacher, this is a resource. I have links to all kinds of people and websites and materials, and they light up. Or even demonstrations when I'm trying to uh, demonstrate a point about language perception and eye contact and that kind of thing, and how we need to really rethink that. But mm-hmm. I don't think we have time to go into that now. Other so time, some yeah. of yeah, but um, so some of the wonderful. Uh, sites that I like. And this ties in actually with um, kind of uh, your focus. So if we're looking at adult uh, and education, um, I uh, went to a conference uh, last year around this time in San Diego on the exceptional mind and and art. And uh, Chantal Cecile Kira was speaking and she has a website called autismcollege.com. She is a parent Uh, of an adult son and she looks at you know what happens after they finish high school what opportunities and so her books and her website are very helpful I like trainthetalent.net Dr. Rosa Martinez she's based in New York and it looks at art as an important area to explore giving voice to another way of expressing what students uh, might have otherwise you know, difficulty getting across you know a picture's worth a thousand words and in that uh, and that's why the artwork on the cover and back of my book is done by my students based on we pl- had a garden that we planted at school and the garden was really important to them and what they learned and so uh, I, I commissioned my students they were thrilled to participate and their art appears so I look at the arts music and so on as a really important area for part of an enriched learning experience for our students mm-hmm. it's important for all students mm-hmm. that's even more true for students on the spectrum uh, the Trefford Center, uh, you can go to the Trefford Center at Agnesian Health, uh, or, or Agnesian.com, I should say. But probably if you just put in Trefford Center, that'll come up. Um, there's a site I like. It's just started, chatwithus.org. Uh, Phyllis Kupperman is a speech and language pathologist based in um, Illinois, and she was the founding members uh, and uh, 
Director of Speech and Language Disorders, and their materials are excellent, especially for teaching reading comprehension. Really okay. like it. Uh, the Special Eastern Foundation, it's, uh, they look at job employment through working with different areas and, and computer technology. This was started by uh, a father for his son, and it's now an international. They're in my book, so you just have to put in Special Eastern Foundation. Gizmos is a, a site I use. You go to explorelearning.com, and it's interactive science and math lessons that are great. Um, let's see a few more. Oh, yes. Executive Function, Sarah Ward, efpractice.com. And then the National Autistic Society uh, in the UK, an excellent website, answers all your questions and more. And they have a magazine and they're at uh, autism.org UK. Perfect. So those are a few, but there's so many in my book. Like when I went to look through, I thought, oh, would I... Can't leave this one out, and so um, that's the thing. And you know, people read the book and thought, "Yeah, I already know this. I don't need those." But this I didn't know about, and yeah, so I tried yeah. to really provide a, a wide range in all subject areas: math, science, the arts, literature, and uh, and the research, which are also needed to know and have in your tools. yeah. Researchers like sense. Ami Klin, who's done important stuff about eye contact, yeah. bringing in speech and language pathologists, because my background is in psycholinguistics and mm -hmm. so and perception. What we see is not necessarily what we get. So the sort of little lessons on uh, you know that the brain is essentially dark, and so I bring in things. Well, with blind people, they go on a what I call a developmental detour. And they, there's something called echolocation, which is clicking or tapping, mm -hmm. and it actually creates visual images in the brain. And so I have demonstrations of that in the book. So again, different minds. When, when this is not available to someone because they are blind, the eyes, mm -hmm. then they find another way into the, many pathways to the brain. And, the, and so people on the spectrum often take the lo road less traveled. Mm -hmm. But we're all going to the same destination. Wonderful, wonderful note to wrap it all up. So I want to get into our last couple of questions. Sure. I really love um, and love to learn more about. Uh, what are you excited about and looking forward to in the coming months? You know, I'm just thrilled. I mean, the book has just, you know, been out for a month. And already, like today with you, I'm connecting with so many people and hearing from different organizations. And uh, I just feel that it's almost going too fast. And so I thought, wow, you write a book and you just think, okay, it's a book. It's just going to sit on a shelf. But it's opened up a whole world of connections that I'm really excited about. Learn, And I'm learning um, so much more. I just got an email. Are, are, are you on Instagram? And I thought, because I'm uh, older, I thought, no, should I be? <laughs> oh, I guess I better explore that. And um, so it's just been an opportunity to speak to so many wonderful people. And people have given the book to others and then they get in touch with me. And now I have this website, which is a big learning curve for me. And, and then people reach out there and I'm having a mailing list and then a newsletter. And I've already like, I think I have newsletters for for the next year of ideas that keep coming in. Cool. So it's so personally, I'm still learning and I'm very excited. The other thing is just making so many connections and recognizing that wow, you know, this is an exciting time, and I have so much hope because when I was when learning disabilities, when we struggled through that and, and advocating for those students. It took 10 years for us to see a change, but with the internet and with such a diverse community uh, actively involved in promoting our students, our children, their needs, our brothers, in your case, you know, our family, it's going to happen very quickly because we're so interconnected and it really is a community effort and many points of view are needed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's, yeah, I'm going to keep learning and connecting. Which was, is right up your alley. It's a fun challenge to do all of this. And I agree, you should get an Instagram. Um, and I love that your book is so interactive. Like, there's no way no one will just put it on a shelf, especially. But, um, and then our last question, uh, how can people listening to this episode get in touch with you and check out your book, Exceptional Minds Across the Autism Spectrum? Okay. Um, if they go to my website, 
www.teachexceptionalminds.com. Uh, you can see where you can get the book. There are excerpts in the resource section. There's, on my website, it says questions, and then you click on resources, and there's some excerpts from my book, so you can see if it's the sort of thing that you're interested in. Mm -hmm. uh, and it, you can see where you can buy the book, and you can sign up on my mailing list, and I'll be working on getting a newsletter out soon. Yeah, and Yeah, so that would be the place. Awesome, perfect. And it's at Amazon and all the, you know. All of the self-published. Yeah. Oh, great, great. Yeah, we'll make sure to link all of those as well on the show notes and uh, any additional updates when this comes out. But Corinne, it was so wonderful talking with you today. I look forward to our future chats about your book and what you learn along the way. Thank you very much. A huge thank you again to Corinne for joining us for today's episode. You can check out everything that we talked about in our show notes on the Autism Grown Up website, autismgrownup.com. And this is also linked in the description of this episode of wherever you are listening today. And this leads me to a quick ask. So if you found value in this episode and know that others would really also benefit from listening to this podcast, please leave us a rating and review. This really truly helps others in the autism community be able to find us easier online. You can also take a screenshot of you listening to the podcast on your phone or whatever device and tag us at Autism Grown Up. That's pretty much our tag everywhere. And that also helps get the word out about the show in a big way. So thank you ahead of time for doing that. And Thank you so much again for listening to another episode of the AGU podcast. I'm looking forward to our episode next week, and I'll chat with y'all soon. This episode was brought to you by our supporters. We are a nonprofit, and we would love you to become a supporter yourself of future episodes like this one. Like I mentioned, this is just one of the many resources we offer in our resource center, and we're working towards a fundraising goal on expanding our resource center, and we need your help. Go to autismgrownup.com support dash agu to learn more and help us keep the show and our resource center running.